This is the Author Archive Podcast. I'm David Freeman. In this episode, an enthusiast, a scientific enthusiast. I met him in his office at the Natural History Museum. His name's Richard Forty, and he knows an awful lot about an organism which existed millions of years ago, the trilobite. It's a long-standing passion of Richard's. So I asked him, well, how did it all start? As a schoolboy, I went on a holiday to West Wales and saw a map. Trilobites can be found here. You know, one's instinctively drawn to these things. And I spent my entire summer holiday bashing up rocks with a coal hammer. Uh, and eventually I found a trilobite. And I suppose, in a sense, it was love at first sight. Uh, <laughs> um, what is, for those who don't know, what is a trilobite? Define. Well, a trilobite is a fossil, or it's a kind of fossil. And I'll show you one. Um, it's uh, distantly related to crabs and lobsters and indeed insects, which, of course, as you know, are the most diverse creatures alive on the planet today. But had you been back three or four hundred million years ago, the sea would have been swarming with these animals. They vary from things the size of a pea to things, uh, uh, gigantic monsters to, in my world of a metre or so in length. Uh, so they were an, a very, very diverse form of life. Um, and is this a model of one? No, that's a real one. That is a real yeah, one. Yeah, that's about as good as they get. And if you look at it, it's rolled up. It was rolled up like a woodlouse, you know, for protection. And if you look at it, you'll see that on its head, there are two little eyes here, yes. sitting up and looking at you. And uh, a metaphor I use throughout the book is the idea of seeing vanished worlds through the eyes of the trilobite, because they have preserved as fossils the best and earliest preserved visual system. So we actually know something about their, their optics, about how they saw the world. When was this guy alive and looking? Oh, that was, that's about 400 million years ago. Now, you see, this boggles me, because we all know when the, the, the dinosaur thing and um, Jurassic Park and that BBC series. I mean, that's a mere 140, 150 million years ago. That's right, yes. Yeah. And this 400 million years ago. Oh, yes, the oldest trilobites are more than 500 million years old. And they were around for 300 million years. So um, that's a hugely successful organism. They were hugely successful. And uh, I suppose part of my mission has been to uh, show to the public at large that paleontology doesn't begin and end with dinosaurs and perhaps with man, but that it is an enormous endeavour studying millions of different kinds of fossil creatures. And through these fossil creatures, we can reconstruct and uh, examine vanished worlds. They give us the information which enable us to see the world. And of course, you can look through the eyes of the trilobite at what the seas were like at the time. I witnessed an evolution. Now, this little guy, his eyes were looking. Obviously, something went, a lot, went on that he didn't quite like, so he curled up for protection. Yes. Do you, do you find in the fossil record a beginning, middle and end of trilobite times? Oh, yes, you do. I mean, I must emphasise that there are thousands of different kinds mm. of trilobites and that they evolve through time. And they're very common. I mean, most people don't think of fossils as common. Uh, but if you go to the right rocks, you can collect thousands of these little fellas. And, of course, if you've got a snapshot of time as well, you can actually read what happened to the trilobites through geological time. So one of the things I've shown is that from 
quite small beginnings, like the fossil of trilobite in your hand, you can actually examine evolutionary process itself. Uh, for example, uh, there's a big debate uh, about so-called punctuated equilibria. Yes, where, uh, where, where things go along ding, 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 for a long, long time, then suddenly ding, everything changes. That's right. The evolution is a mass, well, it's a tail punctuated by jerks, if you like. Yes. Things stay very similar for a long time and then reappear somewhat different, modified, over a short period of time. Well, few people would realise that this rather grand theory had its origin in a study of, of trilobites. Tri means three, um, doesn't it? Yep, this, little, this little guy, he looks more like a, a, a dilobite. I mean, I can see his front end with the, with the head and yep. then the rest. But it's divided along its length, you see, into three lobes. You'll see right. there's a, a central yes. axial part, yes. which is where all the muscles were. And then there are two sort of flanging parts, which make the animal sort of tripartite. So, hence the name. And the it's also divided, sorry, into, into a head and a flexible thorax which can curl up and a tail going along the length of the animal. So it's divided in three both ways. In three, like. yeah, okay. Um, and the biggest this got, you say, is a metre long. Yes, there are some. I mean, there's, every year brings a new claim for the largest. But there are yes. some very, very big trilobites indeed. Um, and they were quite fearsome creatures, probably among the largest of their time. This, of course, they, trilobites had their heyday before the first dinosaur was thought of. Uh, indeed, colonisation of land was rather minimal at the time that the trilobites lived. They mostly lived swarming in the sea. But they lived in the sea everywhere from the inshore right down to the ocean depths. And some of them swam in the, in the ocean, open ocean waters. So if, we, if we'd been walking on a, a Cambrian seashore, the chances are our feet would have crunched on, on trilobite shells. And when this creature was alive, what, was, what were our continents like? Because you know, continental drift has produced the very familiar um, topography of the globe. What would, the, what would have his globe looked like? Well, this is one of the things you can do with trilobites. You can actually use them to reconstruct the globe. Uh, I mean, most people are familiar with the idea of Pangaea, the time when the continents were all together as one huge mass. That was almost at the end of the trilobites' existence. But an earlier period still, the continents had, were again split apart. They actually came together to form Pangaea. So what I've done with trilobites as part of my research life is to use trilobites to reconstruct the jigsaw puzzle of the ancient continents. If you like, they were, uh, they were as distinctive in their way of old continents as, say, kangaroos are of Australia. And if you imagine cutting Australia down the middle and drifting it off into two different places, it's millions and millions of years hence, you could reconstruct Australia by finding fossils of kangaroos and saying, this must have formed a single entity. Well, so with the trilobites. So when I say in my book, you know, I have made an ocean or recognised an ocean, that's no less than the truth. Uh, we've seen two huge areas with different trilobite faunas separated by what is now a rather discreet ancient mountain belt. And that ancient mountain belt was the size of a, a site of a former and now vanished ocean. So you see, by starting with little things, you can go to nothing less than the picture of the world. I'm fascinated by the eyes. Now, nature had worked out the eye 400 million years ago. Is this the first creature we know about to have eyes? These trilobites, right back to more than 500 million years ago, had well-developed eyes. And the 
thing about the trilobite eye is it's actually preserved in shell. They use the shell material to make the eye, to make the lenses of the eye. So they're extraordinarily well preserved. It's likely what we know about genes means that the eye, the structure of the eye, and the instruction, make an eye, is even older. It goes back into the mists of Precambrian time. So what we have with trilobites is a kind of snapshot of the early development of the eye, but in spite of its antiquity, it's enormously sophisticated. They actually use the property of, of calcite, the mm. rock crystal itself, uh, to uh, produce a very sophisticated optics. In fact, some trilobites even developed little spherical lenses with a special uh, device within the lens to correct spherical aberration for an extra sharp image. I mean, it would, a common misconception is that just because something's old means that it is somehow poorly developed or uh, halfway there. But this isn't true. It is a misconception. Trilobites had an extraordinarily efficient optical system, uh, one that in some ways is as good as or better than any of the jointed-legged animals, arthropods living today. Think of a dragonfly's eye, you know, with its thousands of lenses and its extraordinary capacity to pick up small items of prey. Well, some trilobites had eyes as enormous with thousands of lenses. I mean, most, uh, probably the most difficult task I ever had to do was to try and count them. I think I got to 4,000 or something and gave up. Um, so trilobites had the most bizarre um, and elaborate optical system. Now, why did they need them? Because even hundreds of millions of years ago, there was quite a fully developed marine ecosystem with predators and prey uh, and uh, filtering organisms and those that plowed through the mud and so on. Uh, we tend to think of the ecosystem as getting ever more complex as it builds up towards the present. Well, as far as the sea is concerned, even 400 million years ago, there were complex ecosystems involving corals and bio, uh, filter feeding animals and grazing animals and predators and so on. And the trilobites were part of that scenario. So how did they get about? You see, when, when you talk about one that's uh, a metre long, I, th I think of it, probably erroneously, as getting around like a ray. You know, these are somehow aerodynamic or water dynamic creatures. Well, I, I mean, what you see as the fossil the usual fossil, is just the hard calcite exoskeleton. It's yes. like the shell of a crab. Yeah. Uh, underneath, if we unrolled this animal and it was alive, we would have seen little legs, just like the legs of a, a beetle that you've turned over in the garden, mm. or, or the um, legs of a shrimp. They're very, very rarely preserved as fossils because they didn't have this calcite covering. But we know some examples, including some fantastic ones, where you can actually X-ray the rock to see the legs inside the animal. Uh, we know what the legs were like, uh, and that they, uh, most of them actually used the legs for walking around on the seafloor. Uh, but some there were that took off from the seafloor for a life in the open ocean. And those are the ones you mentioned um, hydrodynamically yes. designed. Some of them became quite hydrodynamically designed to, to swim through the water. Uh, so yes, the whole sea was alive with trilobites. So what happened then? Um, you say in the book that they, they disappeared more with a whimper than a bang. Um, when was this whimper happening? Well, uh, like many other uh, ancient organisms, Paleozoic organisms, they died out more or less at the same time as Pangaea was assembled, in fact. 
Um, and they do, but they'd been declining in overall diversity for quite a time before that. It's always been my hope that uh, somewhere one of these animals would have crawled down to the deep sea and survived. Um, but yeah. uh, uh, so far, none of the trawls from the deep sea have brought, brought one up. The, the youngest ones we know had a rather specialised habitat. They weren't as diverse as they were earlier in their history. And, well, I guess that crustaceans and other sorts of organisms eventually outcompeted them, but slowly. But you do say that the horseshoe crab is actually quite a close relative? Oh, yes, yes. That's probably its closest living relative. Um, and, uh, well, it's a very interesting question why those creatures should survive and the trilobites die out. I think myself it's because uh, horseshoe crabs developed a tremendous tolerance for extreme conditions, uh, even hypersaline, you know, extra salty mm. conditions. Uh, and some of them had um, developed these very large yolky eggs, which were also a survival strategy. Um, but it's nice to know that we can look at least something in the living fauna that's distantly related to trilobites. Yeah, but it, 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 there is this dream that somewhere you get these, um, these sulfur emissions, don't you, in the deep ocean, where you get these sort of micro, uh, microclimates that somewhere there might be some living trilobite? Well, those, yes, those deep ocean vents are really a rather specialised habitat. Mm. And there are one or two organisms that live down there that are, in some sense, very specialised, but primitive survivors. Uh, big um, wormy-type things, for example, that have had a history as long as the trilobites. So maybe somewhere like that one could linger on. I mean, I would be delighted if they did. Um, but nobody's found one yet. Richard Forte, waxing lyrical with enthusiasm about the trilobite. He's written a book about it. This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman.